Welcome to the Creativity Lab, the podcast that shows how to channel your creativity to live your best, most beautiful life. And now here's your host, director of the Creativity Lab at West Los Angeles College, Harvard PhD, TV writer and professor, Dr. Catherine Boutry. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Each episode, we discuss a creative approach to life's challenges. Today, we'll talk to Professor Jennifer Ortiz on being a woman of color in academia, creativity, code switching, consistently being yourself, always speaking up, claiming space, and being racially equity-minded. After working in anti-proliferation and labor movements, Jennifer Ortiz returned to academia, serving two terms as chair of the English department at LA Trade Tech. She now teaches at West LA College. Jennifer worked with USC at the Center for Urban Education. She's an expert practitioner in race consciousness and equity-minded teaching. Jennifer, I should say Professor Ortiz, thank you so much for being with us today. How do you infuse creativity into your teaching? I was a bit of a art geek when I was in high school in particular, but you know, I've always been really um, involved in the arts. So, you know, I was in chorus in elementary school and in junior high, and then um, I met this amazing art teacher when I got to high school. Um, shout out to Belmont High School. <laughs> and uh, Miss Dazer actually like really taught me about um, just the value of becoming more worldly and the fact that you could learn more about the world through art. Uh, and so I started um, painting and drawing under her tutorage and then um, decided that at some point I wanted to incorporate those things into my teaching. So one of the things that I do is that I incorporate the art exhibit um, visits that I mm -hmm. have gone to see. So for example, in my English 101, I focus my class on the Charles White exhibit I went to go see in New York. And then for my English 103, I focus on um, uh, exhibit I got to see at the Autry Museum of uh, Native American activists. So I incorporate that as much as possible in every opportunity I have and really try to get students to also talk about art and whatever philosophy the exhibit was, you know, framing the images about, I incorporate that into to my uh, curriculum as well. I love that. So there's an interdisciplinarity mm -hmm. about your teaching. That's fantastic. I notice on your Twitter description, it says writer, teacher, mystic. Do those three things intersect for you? Yeah, um, I'm someone that's uh, highly spiritual and I have uh, very uh, rigorous uh, spiritual practices. And, you know, a lot of it are, you know, inherited through, you know, just from family, um, but also some of it, uh, some of them are things that I've adopted. Um, and that's important to me. Um, I think it's a really good way for me to uh, keep track of, you know, what I stand for and what I believe and how I want to represent in this world. Uh, and then, you know, I'm working on my first book. The, the considering myself a writer is actually a new thing. Um, it took me a minute to, to own that title, uh, but I'm working on my first book and I decided to just put it out there. I'm a writer. And then as a teacher, you know, uh, teachers had such a huge impact in my life. And I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, when I got to college, I knew I wanted to be a professor. And in every role, you know, whether it was in my career as a teacher or in my previous career as a union organizer, I teaching was central, you know, in order to, um, I feel like it's one of the, those jobs that, you know, you make the biggest impact, um, you know, so I'm very passionate about teaching. Can you walk me through your journey to becoming a professor? 
I was born and raised in LA. Um, part of my childhood was in South Central. The la the latter part was in uh, the Pico Union area. And, um, you know, my parents came here as, you know, political refugees from El Salvador. My father actually went to college, but, you know, during the time that he was in school, that's when the uh, civil revolution happened in the country. And so he had to leave school and eventually he became politically active and had to leave the country. Um, and so education was something that was always instilled in me. Um, you know, as, as strict as my parents work, um, you know, because they were, you know, they had that like uh, PTSD, you know, from coming from a, a war-torn country. They, they were very, very strict with us. But the only place my parents would let me go by myself uh, or unsupervised was the library. So I spent a lot of time in the library just kind of gathering knowledge. I read all types of book f books from a very early age. Um, and it's something that I've carried with me, you know, I'm 40 now and I'm still, you know, reading books. Same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is, is that why English, do you think, because of the books? Partly, yes. Um, the other part is, um, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot in Twitter, especially um, a lot of equity-minded mm. practitioners is the role that uh, rage plays into success. Mm. And so for me, my earliest memory of how I fell in love with English and reading was uh, a memory I have from kindergarten. And uh, I didn't know how to speak English. I was, you know, my parents were Spanish speaking. And I remember asking my teacher for instructions. We were practicing how to tie a shoe. Uh, and I had a hard time, you know, mm. I was having a difficulty and I asked her and I clearly remember her telling me, speak English. Mm. And it was embarrassing to me because I wanted to, I was trying my hardest and I feel like I carried that memory because it made me so mad. Um, and then I just remember promising myself like, okay, I'm gonna learn English and I'm gonna speak English and I'm gonna get really good at it. And then I just carried that, you know. Which you did. <laughs> I'm here now. <laughs> I'm here now. Um, so you mentioned an early art teacher who mm -hmm. was very influential. Was it at that point or a later point that you decided you wanted to become a professor? You got into college. Mm -hmm. um, where did you go? I went to Mills College, which is a liberal arts women's college in uh, Oakland, California. And what shaped that decision? I um, just felt like at some point, maybe around 10th grade, uh, I started struggling with math and math and science were, di were disciplines that I was really good at when I was in elementary and in junior high because there was one right answer, mm. you know, so I became really, really good at it. But when I got to high school, I really started struggling and I noticed that um, my math teacher just paid more attention to um, some of the male students mm. in the classroom. So I started making those types of observations. Who got to speak more? Who took up more space? Who got the help and assistance? Who got the most attention? Mm. And I think little by little, you know, and as I was having, ex you know, going through puberty and having my experiences with, you know, uh, the patriarchy, I just decided by the time I was a junior, I'm gonna go to a women's college. Mm. You know, I, I, I wanted to be in a space where, you know, women have a voice and, and, and my experience would be um, recognized and validated every day. Uh, I decided to become a professor once I was in college and um, I became very good friends with the president of my campus at the time. She was very curious about me and very curious about my story. Mm. And um, I remember her telling me, well, what do you wanna do? And I said, I wanna be a high school teacher. 
And she was like, really, just high school? You don't want to explore anything else? And I was like, well, I would like to come back and give back to my community. And she was like, well, there's ways that you can do that and, and, and continue to pursue your own education. So she was the person that was like, what about a college professor? And I was like, okay, well, let me consider that. Um, I remember when I was applying to grad school, she volunteered to write me a letter of recommendation. And that was, that was the, the beginning of that journey. What decided to stay, go, go to grad school and then, you know, so that I could get a, a position as a college professor. I see a theme too, which hearing your story makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. too, that you're very equity minded. It's a very important cause for you. Mm -hmm. It sounds like that probably had its origins with your family. Mm -hmm. um, how do you express being equity minded in your everyday life? Is it always present with you? I feel like I have a very strong sense of justice. Um, justice is important to me. Um, I learned very early on um, just what injustice looks like. I would say that the first equity-minded practitioner in my life was my cousin Walter. Um, and he was the oldest cousin of our group, the boy. And you know he was just someone that looked after me. You know he protected me from the older cousins, and you know when <laughs> the older kids didn't want me on the basketball team, you know he would always say, you know Jennifer's going to be in my team um, because I was like you know the little one, <laughs> the little one and the shortest. <laughs> so um, that was the first equity-minded practitioner I met. Like he mm -hmm. wanted to give me access to an experience, and he decided to use his privilege right and his access to to giving me a good experience and give you know so that I can play with the other kids um, and unfortunately he passed away um, his big dream was to go to USC he actually I have this picture of him in my altar of him wearing a USC a secondhand USC um, t-shirt t-shirt and he didn't get to do that but you know years yet years later I ended up working at USC doing um, racial equity work and writing a racial equity curriculum mm. so it's just uh, you know when you ask me that question that's who I think of I think of Walter yeah that's beautiful I'm sorry mm -hmm. did you face any obstacles on your way to becoming a professor was it smooth sailing the whole way? <laughs> you know the answer to that. You know the answer to that. The answer is no. Um, it wasn't smooth sailing. You know, I was the first generation um, immigrant, first generation college student. I was a woman. Um, I think that as much as um, the best teachers at my high school tried to prepare me for college, there's really no way, you know, if you don't have that kind of legacy and generational knowledge, right, for that level of preparation. So um, college was difficult for me. Um, you know, I, I, I ended up finding my community. I ended up finding um, other, you know, women of color that were also first generation that were older than me, you know, juniors and seniors, mm. um, that helped me, you know, along the way. And for whatever reason, when I graduated, I thought, you know, that I was done, right? I was done in um, experiencing um, those types of inequities or those types of microaggressions mm -hmm. in academia because I was like, well, I'm legit now. You know what I mean? I'm a professor. I have a master's degree. I have a great point, uh, grade point average. Um, you know, the, the, the struggle is over, but it wasn't. Um, so now that I'm in academia, I have experienced um, similar struggles. Um, I'm more equipped now. Um, to to take them on and to handle them, and I definitely am more empowered. But um, you know, you know, uh, historically white spaces are going to be a challenge for people of color, especially for first generation um, students that are pursuing work in academia. How do you keep from being disillusioned? 
I think that um, students, <laughs> students are um, so inspirational. I get to learn from them every day. I get to learn about myself constantly. Um, and I know that, you know, there is no end goal in becoming a good teacher. Like becoming a good teacher, it's a lifelong, you know, journey. You learn something new every day. There's a new method, a new study. Um, you know, you get evaluated and you learn something about your teaching that's not effective or something that you do really well. So students are, are definitely the, 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 um, the anchor um, that helps me stay motivated and not be, you know, disillusioned. Did you ever have moments when you thought you would give up? What kept you persevering? Um, students, for sure. Students, for sure. Um, I think that 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 rage and that sense of injustice. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get me out of here. I work too hard, yeah. you know, and I and I deserve a place here. I've earned my place here. Um, you know, I'm also very uh, union oriented, mm -hmm. so I, I understand the value of worker rights and I'm not gonna let my worker rights be trampled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, finding community, finding like-minded individuals that, you know, have had similar experiences and or that wanna learn and wanna ally. So those are some things I do. Are you conscious of being a role model for the students in your class who may want to be professors? Does that ever feel like a burden to you? Does it feel like a great opportunity. I've read so many studies that talk about the impact that that you know that that you know being a, a faculty of color or being a woman of color in a faculty position um, that it's impactful for students. There's all these studies, especially as I've been developing racial equity curriculum for other um, professors, for other practitioners. I understand that that impacts you know students. When I go into a classroom, I think what I try to model more are my virtues. Mm. You know, like I believe in community. I believe in justice. I believe in, you know, providing a helping hand whenever possible. I believe in kindness. I believe in love. So I feel like if I could be, if I could, at the forefront of my mind, um, that's what I think about. I want to model those types of virtues, you know, the virtues that, you know, um, you know, just I feel like we need to be mindful of in order to be, you know, to make a better world and to make an impact. Um, but I don't really necessarily keep that at the forefront. Like I'm first gen. It usually like it's kind of like it comes in secondary mm -hmm. for me. Do you share your personal experience with your class? I do. You know, I do share that um, with them. And normally it's because they start asking questions, you know, like, well, where did you go to college, professor? Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. I mean, I do believe in just how powerful the personal narrative is, you know, in sharing your story yeah. and that academic spaces should incorporate the personal narrative or the personal story into learning. Does being equity minded affect the curriculum choices that you use in your own class, the books that you assign, the topics that you, the essays that you assign, or does that feel like a separate part of you? Um, being racially equity-minded um, permeates almost everything I do. And that's why sometimes I don't even really stop to think about it, mm. you know, because it's just the way I move, sure. you know. Um, and, it, and yes, um, one of the, the most integral practices um, in terms of being racially equity-minded is to decenter whiteness. And when you decenter whiteness, you have to really look at your practices and your teaching methods as a teacher, right? And how are you upholding that whiteness? Um, but also you have to look at your curriculum. So if you look at my curriculum, you know, my 101 curriculum centers um, a, a black male painter. 
my 103 curriculum centers, um, you know, Native American activists. My 102 curriculum centers um, uh, women of color. So I, I am very mindful and I definitely um, make an effort to incorporate those things. Um, and then I also really learning the demographics of your campus and where your equity gaps are. Yeah. I'm mindful of that I'm designing my curriculum to, to, to address that or to at least respond to that in a way that our students that are falling in the equity gaps can feel represented and seen. Sure. Um, Paul Torrance, who was a big thinker in creativity, said mm -hmm. that a huge part of creativity is diversity mm -hmm. because you get more voices in the room mm -hmm. because you hear more. Have you experienced that in the real world? Um, you know, before I became more trained and more knowledgeable in terms of, 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 of the difference between diversity and equity, um, I would say yes. I, you know, I thought I would look at my curriculum and I would say, okay, I have two Asian authors. I have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have an author from Palestine and I have an author from, you know, Peru. I'm diverse now. Um, but I felt like, you know, uh, diverse is just the first level. Diversity is almost just a given. But I feel like if we're aiming for justice, mm -hmm. right, we have to think about diversity and equity, hand in hand. How do we move, if we, how do we move from good intentions to solid commitments where becoming more racially equity-minded is involved? I would say that the first thing is the data um, because the data allows us to step away from our anxieties and, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of like those individual stories of, well, you know, I'm, my class didn't do so well because I was assigned the class late, which, you know how that goes, right? <laughs> you know how that goes. Um, and I wasn't really able to prepare, right? Something like that. But if you step away and you really look at data, you're not necessarily looking at the, the attempt, right? You're looking at the impact you're looking at the results. And I feel like if we are looking at the results, then we can work our way back and figure out, well, where did we mess up? Where in the system, right, did we mess up? And what is it that we need to tinker with or, or work on? So I think number one is really focusing on um, impact instead of intent. Mm. Um, and I would say the second thing is, um, you know, really learning to be humble and knowing that I don't have all the right answers in terms of equity. I mean, sure, like I'm Latina, sure, I'm first generation, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't have biases, you know? I, I, I have learning to do as well. Um, so I think just like kind of learning that humility that it's not about you, right, that it's about a bigger, greater thing, you know, that it's about justice, that it's about students um, is really important. Kind of taking your, removing your ego and your, you know, well intentions and knowing that, you know, if you want to become, you know, more racially equity minded, you have to learn some humility. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. What position do you feel most comfortable in? If you had your choice, I know you've served previously as chair, you're professor now at West. Do you like the leadership role or the team player role or do you like to move back and forth? I think that if academia was more, was a safe space for me as a woman, as a person of color, as first generation, I would love a leadership role. I would love to be like the president of an institution someday, right? But it doesn't feel like that. Where we are today, 
It doesn't feel like that for me. So right now, that's not an option for me. You know, with the pandemic and everything, I think I really want to focus more on just becoming the best teacher I can be and, you know, working on my own health and, and my own kind of personal um, ambitions outside of academia. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that maybe someday, you know, that I will work, you know, that we will work together collectively to make academia safer, a safer space for, um, you know, someone like me to maybe possibly one day run a school. What can we all do as professors and as students to make the classroom a safe space? We can only control our micro environment mm -hmm. at any one time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any practical suggestions for us to make that happen? You know, one thing that I've noticed um, is building community amongst faculty and staff, our counselors, our, you know, our admin that support us, building that community where everyone commits to this, you know, um, into creating a safe space for minoritized groups um, has always been very effective for me. You know, building that community, I mean, that's why I continuously speak up. I'll always hear an echo in the room of like, yeah, I can hear what Jennifer's saying or I appreciate what she's saying, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that community is important, right? So as an ally, I think it would be important that, you know, we are aware, you know, that the space is safe. And then as a, as a student, I would say, um, you know, similar to what I just said earlier, right? Knowing that this is a lifelong process and that if what we're really trying to do is achieve an equitable world, and provide access to everyone, no matter of your skin color or where you come from, right? That this is a commitment that we have to make, you know, till the end of time, yeah. right? Until yeah. things get better. You clearly demonstrate leadership every day, just by the way that you live your life. You mentioned speaking up. That's mm -hmm. a big part that we can all do, right? To be leaders, to speak up when we see something that doesn't jibe with our values, mm -hmm. with what we think is right. Um, if you had a piece of advice to give college students who are thinking, I want to be Professor Ortiz one day, how do I become that person, what would you tell them? Who might not see that for themselves, who are also first gen, you know, feeling like this is a great leap into the unknown. Claim space. Mm. You belong. Claim space. You belong. You know, trust that you are someone that should be here, that you are deserving. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel different when you walk off the campus, when you walk on the streets somewhere? Do you feel differently than you do on campus? Or do you maintain the same? Is it the same you everywhere? Do you feel like you play roles? One thing, I mean, I, I, your, this question is so interesting because uh, uh, friends of mine, we're, we're always talking about this, mm -hmm. especially as, you know, women of color or people of color, you know, sometimes, you know, we code switch, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the double consciousness sure. and I, t you talk to any faculty of color, you know, they'll, they'll tell you a little bit about that. But I think one of the things that I'm the most proud of is just how hard I work in consistently being myself. Um, because I don't want to be anybody else. Um, and, you know, of course, some spaces require a certain level of, you know, professionalism or, um, but I do try very hard to just, you know, be very aware. Am I being myself? Am I being true to my authentic self? Because I am worthy and I deserve to take space. What are you excited about right now? What's next for you? I um, was evaluated this semester um, at, 
you know, here at West and at a, another institution where I picked up an extra assignment. As we all are, yeah. periodically, <laughs> yes. So um, I'm excited about seeing what those results look like. And, you know, I, you know, was chair, you know, and then came back to teaching during the pandemic. Mm. So I don't know what that's gonna look like, but I am excited to see like, you know, what, what am I doing right? Where can I get better? Um, I'm excited about my first book that I'm working on. I'm working on a, a paranormal romance novel wow. titled um, In South Central We Kill Vampires. Mm. And it's based on Los Angeles. So um, I'm excited about working on that. And um, so far, that's those are the things I'm working on. I'm excited on my fitness. I've started working out because, you know, with the pandemic, we, you know, we all got a little more generous, <laughs> right? Um, so I've been focusing more on health and aligning health with my spiritual practice um, as well. So those are the three things that I would say I'm the most excited about. Thank you so much yeah. for being with us today. It's really welcome. inspiring. Thank you. Thank you.